EcoHealth, your internet radio. We are on the road trip show, and Diederik is here with us in the studio. Diederik, ons gaan een bykie met die mense gesels oor die competities wat ons gaan naarkloop. Um, onder andere die een wat ons met die honderkoos doen, en dan die maaikies van Tuin ene, wat hulle definitief moet voor inskryf. No, there's some, some exciting stuff. Mikey's Fontaine has got me going. Two nights at the Lord Milner Hotel, up for grabs, bed and breakfast. And four elements to the competition. You've got to find answers to a couple of questions. One of the answers will be found on the Road Trip app. One is found on the Mikey's Fontaine website. One will be found on um, the EcoHealth website. And one is found in Road Trip SA magazine. So a little bit of work, a little bit of sleuthing, a little bit of detective work to answer our questions. And you've got a two-night stay at the Lord Milner in Mikey's Fontaine. And that was the thread of our discussion last week. We managed to get Mikey's Fontaine through, from Mikey's Fontaine through to Cape Town, all the way up through some weird and wonderful places, even to a shipwreck in the English Channel, had links into Mikey's Fontaine. But that's what I love about history, these spider webs of stories <laughs> that go through all sorts of things. But today, today's an interesting day. Today is World Rhino Day. World Rhino, World day. Rhino day. Interesting fact, the what we call the white rhino or the square-lipped rhino was one of the success stories, one of the few large mammals ever to be taken off an endangered species list because of the hard work of the then Natal Park Sport down in KZN. <laughs> Unfortunately, now, obviously, the rhino poaching is a big issue. Yeah. And uh, seeing as this program is all about statues and monuments, memorials, I still rate it as one of the worst statues in South Africa as the rhino poaching memorial or statue just outside of Punda Maria Gate next to the Kruger Park. There's a picture of the rhino actually lying there dead with its horn cut off and blood and stuff everywhere yeah. in, in a little statue. But uh, it, it, it sends sure. a message. That's, what's, that's yeah. what art and statues are supposed to do. It sends you a message and makes you think, and that is very valuable. But uh, we've got the rhino, and of course today's equinox. Day and night length are exactly the same tonight. So we're going now into days longer than nights. So today is the yes. equinox. And just on that, not quite Equinox stuff, but South Africa has got two camera obscuras out of 79 total in the entire world. Okay, explain to me what's that. <laughs> A camera obscura. <laughs> there's one in the University of Pretoria and there's one in the museum in uh, Makanda or Grahamstown. A camera obscura is you, if you stand in a room, you get, you get like a big dish. If you can imagine a big satellite dish that's, that, that's like on a dining room table. Oh, yeah. And above it is a thing that looks vaguely like a periscope. Okay. So you can turn this thing around because it's a structure in the roof that rotates and it's got this little yes. periscope and then it projects the street scene down onto this dish. Okay. So you can quietly sit in your room and have this little periscope thingy doing its, doing its circuit out of, out of your room like a, like a submarine periscope and the, and the picture is actually projected onto this dish on your table. So you can sit there and live watch what's going on around you. Really, oh really soul. stunning little, little okay. contraption. <laughs> but we've got two. We've got two of them in South Africa. And that, that, that's actually very cool. And the equinox, you know, talking about solar systems and, yeah, and all sorts of other stuff. And there's one interesting spot in South Africa that's never quite been completely explained. And that's the place now called Adam's Calendar. Adam's, oh yeah, Adam's calendar, one, which yeah. is out near Waterfall Boven, which is under investigation by 
scientists and archaeologists and things. They are ancient structures. They are ancient villages and they are old houses and stuff. It looks vaguely similar to what Great Zimbabwe would be, those kind of stone structures, you know, very, very well-crafted stone walls and things. Oh, yeah. But there are there's speculation and some of them are lined up with um, astrological events like, you know, sunrises and equinoxes and solstices and things like that. Those have never quite been proven and there's also guys who have taken it right to the other extent that they line up with the pyramids in Egypt and 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 structures in South America that the Mayans yeah. and Aztecs made and stuff. How how valid that is, I don't know, but it's it's worth a visit to yeah. go up out of our direction and go and stand and have a look at some of that stuff. But uh, that's all that, that that's kind of cool. And then of course today there are two other anniversaries. The first one being is that today, 22nd of September, is the anniversary of the assassination of King Shaka. Okay. Yes. Shaka, one of those characters, again, that has gripped the imagination of South Africans. And, of course, an uh, immensely world, yeah. an immensely <laughs> important and um, influential historical figure. And he was killed by his half-brother, Dingan, on this day. In 1828. Now, Shaka, you can you can still buy and get the that really really good TV series that was made all those years ago, sometime in the 1970s, I think it was. Yeah, I remember something like that. So, so uh, it was either was Shaka cool. or Shaka Zulu. I, can't I think it was uh, Shaka with Henry Zulu, Henry Tele yeah. as as the lead role. Brilliant actor. Yeah, and it, but actually historically pretty good. They didn't do a Hollywood on Shaka. They actually told the proper story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a series worth watching, even in this day and age. With, with you know, I mean, it's the thing's what thirty years old or something now, thirty-five years old, but it's still a series that is worth watching, even just for the historical facts on it. Yeah. And why? It, why did Dengon kill Shaka? Shaka. I can't remember. Shaka was very, very attached to his mother. His mother and Shaka, um, his mother Nandi and Shaka were rejected by his father um, because Na- Shaka was born as an illegitimate child. Oh, okay. And Senzaka Kona refused to acknowledge Nandi and Shaka as his wife and as his firstborn. Yeah. So Shaka and Nandi were ostracized. He had a very, very difficult childhood. Yeah. And eventually. He did manage to unite the, the Zulu clans into one Zulu nation. And he then obviously looked after his mother very, very well. He had an incredibly strong bond with his mother. And when his mother died, he apparently lost the plot a little bit. Yeah. And he declared a long period of mourning where people weren't allowed to plant crops, for example. They weren't allowed to milk the cows. And the, the nation was actually facing starvation and, and ruin. Oh. Okay, and Dingan, Dingan and some other plotters decided that the only way to fix this was to actually kill Shaka. Yeah. And Shaka's grave is now in um, Kwadukuza or in Stanger, just north of Durban. And there's, there's, there's not many statues and things of King Shaka. And it's actually quite funny. There was a little, there was a bit of a controversy. And I think it was about 2010 when the new King Shaka airport was opened. An artist was commissioned to build a, to make a statue of King Shaka. And Shaka was put up outside, and he didn't have a weapon on him. He didn't have a shield on him. He was actually herding some cows. 
Yeah. And that created a whole lot of uproar because they said it wasn't stately enough and wasn't kingly enough and they had to take the statue down and they were going to replace the statue <laughs> with him with a shield and stuff. I don't know. I don't, I've been to King Shark Airport a couple of times and I haven't seen a new statue there yet. Yeah. So, you know, the, the image of Shark obviously is something very, very dear to the Zulu nation. Yes, yes. But then we start chatting about um, Dingaan and Dingaan played that massive role at the time of the foot trekkers. Yes. With Petra Tief, when Petra Tief managed to go up over the Drakensberg. Now, we're skipping a whole lot of stuff here. You know, we're going from, from Shaka to Dingaan to Petra Tief. But Petra yeah. Tief was leader of one of the groups of the fur trekkers. And the fur trekkers coming out of the Eastern Cape four years, five years with ox wagons, they had an end goal and an end area, and they knew that, that the areas in KZN, or what now is KZN, was beautiful land. And they'd come up, and Lesotho obviously is a massive obstacle, so they skirted around Lesotho on, on the western side, came across now to sort of where Harry Smith is. And they were waiting there, and they sent emiss emissaries down to Dingaan to negotiate and see if they couldn't come down for some land. And the, sto the story gets a bit fuzzy, and I'm bound to tread on a couple of toes here, but I'm going to tread on <laughs> toes equally on all sides, so I'll come out in the middle somewhere. <clears throat> in that the, the trekkers were on at the top of the berg, and they sent emissaries down to Dingaan to negotiate for land. And the story now gets a little bit fuzzy, in that some people say the trekkers had no permission to come down. Other people say they had been given permission to come down the mountain. And if you use the, uh, it's the R-74, the R-74 from Harry Smith that comes down the berg, you actually travel down past Retief Rock, and you travel past a monument called the Kalfoot Fro Monument. Kalfoot Fro. Those, those are both in the area around the Sturkfontein Dam. Sturkfontein Dam, also a beautiful engineering project, part of the Val Tugela water system that generates an awful lot of electricity. Very simply put, during the day when there's excess power, they pump yeah. water up into the Stokefontein Dam, and at night they release it down through turbines um, down the escarpment again. And the entire okay. thing is buried in the mountain. You can see nothing. You can stand on a parking lot. There's a couple of vents on the top of the mountain, but for the rest you see absolutely nothing. Okay. And all these turbines and things are buried in the mountain. So it's not an eyesore. It's an amazing piece of engineering. Wow. Okay, but that, that, that road good. more or less follows the route that the foot trekkers brought that uh, took, took down the escarpment to get into KZN. Anyway, the, for the trekkers get to the, 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 the nice lands, I mean, where the, now the Natal Midlands are, that, that's the, the best farming area we've got in South Africa. That's like our horse racing, Kentucky blues, Kentucky grass kind of, kind of area. Yeah. That's around Notting, Notting Road, uh, that area, what's now called the Midlands Meander. Also okay. a fantastic part of the country to go touring around the Midlands Meander. But the trekkers were there. And then, of course, I think everybody knows the story of Retief that goes to visit Dingaan in the kraal. Dingaan turns around and kills Retief and his entire party. Yes. Now, I'm leading up to this because one of my favorite monument stroke museum in South Africa is actually the Fort Trekker Monument in Pretoria. Yes. It's an amazing, absolutely amazing piece of architecture. But I love using the story as a bit of a 
illustrative way to see sort of how how history can get distorted. Yeah. In that, on the one side, it's regarded as complete treachery by Dingaan. Here comes Retief with his group in good faith to negotiate for land. And the treacherous king stands up, shouts out something in the line of kill the wizards. And the, the impies stand up, take them out, out to the execution hill and stab and kill Retief and his entire party. Yeah. But this part of the story that's not really told on that is that the foot trekkers had an English trader with them. I think the guy's name was Bigger, Beggar or Bigger. And this guy wasn't interested in the negotiations. He, didn't, he wasn't interested in land. So he apparently went walkabout in the royal kraal. Okay. Away from the main party. <laughs> and he made it by accident or by design, who knows, but he made it into some of the forbidden parts of the kraal and he made it into the king's private quarters. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was a crime punishable by death. Oh, that's most likely why they got killed. So that is the <laughs> other side of the story that sometimes is conveniently forgotten, forgotten about, about. Or not told. Or not told. But anyway, so where this leads up to is then, of course, the, the impies go out and they try and wipe out the other four-trekker groups that are camped on the base of the escarpment. That's where you get the place like Blokrans, uh, Blo you get Vienna and you get Muertraf, where the Zulu impies go and attack the lagers of the four-trekkers to drive them back out of Natal. Eventually, this culminates later that year. We're now, we're now talking um, 1838, that Andres Pretorius, with his commando, his Ved commando, comes in to exact retribution on the Zulus, and that culminates in the Battle of Blood River. Yeah. And Dingaan is then eventually defeated at the Battle of Blood River. He flees, he goes north and tries, he flees into Swaziland and is actually murdered by the Swazis in the Labombo Mountains, very, very close, sort of on the border there between Mozambique and Swaziland. Yeah. Dingaan gets killed. But this all eventually, the, the fur trackers, as it were, become almost the creation story or the creation myth of South Africa. Like the USA has got the noble cowboy. We've got yeah, the foot trekkers. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember at school, endlessly, every year we had the foot trekkers. Every year we did an element of the foot trekkers in our, in our South African history. Yeah, I remember. We, <laughs> I don't think we do it anymore. Not that I know of. I would have to check with my, with my children. I'm not sure. I think it gets mentioned, but certainly not to the extent that we did it in, yeah. those, in, those, in those years. Yeah, there was a whole lot of things that you did and uh, different <laughs> types of sports. And I don't know what else. I can't remember. It was when I was <laughs> many moons ago. But, you know, but the, the Fortrecker Monument to me is still one of the most iconic museums and monuments that we have in South Africa. And arriving at the Fortrecker Monument, I mean, as you're driving up the circular, the roads that encircle it, you've got this massive granite block that stands on this hill. Yeah. And the symbolism of that is basically we are here, we are granite, we are here to stay, we are immovable, and this is our country. Yeah. yeah. When you arrive and you're in the parking lot, you, you, you go up the stairway, up the staircase, and there's a lot of symbolism built into the Fortrecker Monument. Your, the gates, as you go up, the gates are actually molded and made in the shape of spears. Okay. And that symbolizes the might of the Zulu nation. Yes. 
There's a circular wall. The first sort of structure you see is a circular wall. And on the circular wall are reliefs of ox wagons. Okay. Those ox wagons is exactly the same number of ox wagons that were present at the Battle of Blood River. Okay. So that is Blood River with the Zulus. And Blood River is, and I know of only one other nation that has ever done this, and that is the Israelis on Masada who made a a pact with God, a covenant with God. And the Fortrekkers did the same. And they already, from the 9th of December, when they were were marching off before the Battle of Blood River, already on the 9th of December, they had their covenant with God. Every night leading up until the 16th of December, they re-pledged the covenant with God. Okay. So the belief is there that God was looking after the foot trackers and God gave them victory. Yes. Anyway, so you, you walk up, you're, on the, you're now on the first level, you've got some more stairs, and now you see this, this, this monument, this, this massive structure. And the first statue you see is the foot tracker woman with her two children. And the Fortrecker woman, the other beautiful Fortrecker woman statue is that Karl Fro monument there just on next, next to the Stokefontein Dam. And it shows the reverence and the position of the woman in, in, in the Afrikaner culture. Yes. And the Fortrecker, the Karl Fro, the barefoot woman at, at Stokefontein, is attributed to, it's on the same road, I guess that's quite interesting, because the Retief painting down there, um, Deborah Retief painted her father's name in a little cave on the way down down the, the escarpment. Eventually the footrekkers are kicked out of KZN by the British, and the Kalfut Fro is, whether it's true or not, but the, the, the statement is, I would rather walk barefoot over the Drakensberg than submit to British rule again. Yes, yes. <laughs> so there's the Carlfoot Fro now Carl going the throw. other direction again, back up the mountain, <laughs> back up into the Transvaal to escape the British. Yeah. But that shows the fortitude and the strength of the woman. And again, that is shown in the Fortrecker Monument, where you see this woman protecting her children, holding her two children. And it symbolizes, number one, the relief behind her has got some wild animals. That's a blue wildebeest and a buffalo, that she's protecting her children from the dangers of Africa and from the wilds, and how she's nurturing the future of the nation. Yes, yes. So you then go up and you enter the main doors, and you go into this, into this hall, into this massive structure. And it's, it's awesome. It's, 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 it's almost cathedral-like. You, you automatically go into whisper mode <laughs> when, you, when you walk in there. Yeah, yeah. And it strikes you, this beautiful colored light that comes in, stained glass, like a yellow stained glass windows on all sides of it. You've got beautiful marble work in the floor. The light coming in symbolizes the light of civilization and the light of God coming into darkest Africa. Yeah. The floor is, symbolizes ripples. If you take a little stone and you throw a stone into a still pool of water, the ripples slowly expand. Yeah, yeah. And that is the floor. The floor symbolizes ripples, ripples of civilization yeah. coming, coming out because of the foot trackers. And then, of course, you've got the highlight of that monument, which is the, the beautiful frieze on, that's, that encircles that main hall. And it tells this entire story of the foot trackers. 
Yeah. Right from the departure in the Cape, um, you see them getting their gifts and their, and, their, and 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 Bibles, family Bibles being given by the British, other British settlers, sort of symbolizing it's not a fight with the other people, it's a fight with freedom or fight for freedom and it's a fight for self-determination and it's yes. a fight against government rather than any kind of personal animosity. Yeah. You see um, Louis Trichard eventually arriving in Maputo full of malaria and he eventually dies with his party in what was then Lorenzo Marx. In fact, if you go to if you go to Maputo today, there's a little Futrika monument in one of the side streets in Maputo commemorating that trek as well. Okay. And you've got to search for it. It's hard to find, but it but it is still there. And it's actually quite well maintained by the by the Mozambican government. <coughs> then you go through a couple of their battles, and then the, the main wall at the back of the monument is you actually see Deborah Retief painting her father's name on that cave. You can still visit that little cave today. Okay. And as far as I know, I think that's the only example of Fortrick rock art in South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Deborah Retief wrote, wrote yeah. put her father's birthday, <laughs> painted her father's birthday date um, on there, the 12th yeah. of November, 1837. So 1837, they were on the December 1837, they were on the way down the escarpment. Yeah. And you see them oh, coming over the Drakensberg and... It's so beautifully done. You can see the oxen straining to hold the wagons back. You can see that they've taken the, the back wheels off the ox wagons and tied tree trunks onto the back of the ox wagons to help us brakes. I mean, you've got two, three, four, ten tons of ox wagons sometimes. Yeah. Now you're sliding down mountains with the oxen trying to hold this thing back. You yeah. know, there's no handbrake and no ABS on those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But just the sculpture work on those is just so incredible. And then the next one, the next panel is them actually having the negotiations with Dingaan. You can see Retief standing there, Dingaan sitting there with his servants having a negotiation. The next panel is Retief being being killed by the impis on the hill outside of the royal village. Yes. And then very emotional uh, panel of Blokrans and Viennan as the impis attack the other foot, the other foot tracker lagers. Camped down at the bottom of the escarpment. Then, of course, you've got the Battle of Blood River. And you've got Andres Pretorius. And it always amazes me. Andres Pretorius was a heck of a character. And he was all over. Wherever you look in South Africa, Andres Pretorius was somewhere. He was in the Free State. He was in the Northern Transvaal. He was down in KZN. And I love the depiction of him. He's on his horse with his top hat. He actually fought the battle in top hat and tails. <laughs> wow! Okay. And he's got his sword out. So he's actually leading like a little cavalry charge out of this lager at Blood River, in yeah. his top hat and tails. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a little bit too much British influence there. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, must be proudly South African. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe maybe our heritage is top hat, tails, and a sword. I don't know. <laughs> Coming up to Heritage Day. Yeah, but, it must be khakis and fellies, Omar. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, they, the Africa, the, the, the Futrikers defeat the Zulus and they obviously take this now as a sign from God that they are the chosen people God is on their side yeah, a little group of 160 something Futrikers beats a Zulu impi of 5, 6, 7 thousand attacking yeah. them at Blood River I mean that, that's, that must have been one heck of a fight yeah that must have been horrific that's, that, that then is the start of the Republic of Natalia the Futrikers come back they 
build a little church, the Church of the Vow in Peter Maritzburg. You can still go and see the Church of the Vow in Peter Maritzburg. But then again, the British come and annex Natal, and the Furtriggers then have to leave, go back over to get away from British British yeah. rule. And that's where the Kalfut Fro comes from, that eventual backtrack out of KZN over yeah. the mountains back up into the Transvaal. But uh, let's go to a song quickly, and we'll be back shortly. But seeing as it's Bride Day, and what's the other uh, holiday? It's actually Heritage Day. Heritage Day, but yeah, we always use any excuse to have a bride. So I'll put on a song for that. Uh, Hope you guys enjoy it, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Daar zijn ons weer terug hier op die road trip show. Dietrich, yes, yeah, so if, if we carry on Fortric Monument, yes. so you got the establishment of Republic Natalia, eventually another treaty, the British come in, chase the Fortrickers out, and the Fortrickers then, some of them abandon, abandon KZN and move back over, over to the, the Transvaal. But downstairs, you got the Memorial stone there with that wording on it, Ons for Rio, South Africa. Yes. And 16th of December, anniversary of the Battle of Blood River, every year, 12 noon. There's a little hole in the, in the roof. Exactly 12 noon, the spotlight falls onto those words of, of the national anthem, Ons for Rio, South Africa. Very, very impressive oh, piece of engineering. Wow. Yeah. Another little interesting aside is, you know, the tall buildings always have the little warning light. Flashing the little red light that flashes on the top of the buildings for the aeroplanes. It spells out on for the outside Africa and Morse code. Oh, <laughs> wait, what? Yeah. But uh, if you go downstairs into the museum, and this is one of the things I love about, about, about history, because there's a whole lot of stuff that you just cannot explain. In one of the display cabinets, and a beautiful museum downstairs, there's beautiful tapestries, there's a whole hall, the cannon, the ship's cannon that Andrews Pretorius bought off a British sailing ship, Grieki, uh, that was used at Blood River, is down in that museum as well. Okay. Um, there's the old weapons and the old muzzle loaders and swords and clothes and ox wagons and all sorts of stuff in the museum. But in one of the display cases is a copy of the treaty signed between Retief and Dengan. Oh. Now, okay. I, I throw it out there, and you guys make up your own minds on this one, in that the finding of this treaty, Andres Pretorius apparently found the treaty in the saddlebag next to the remains of Peter Retief on the hill outside Dengan's kraal. Okay. But the treaty was signed probably the 5th or the 6th of February, 1838, at the time of the negotiations. Yeah. Andres Pretorius, Blood River was 16th of December. So give or take another day or so before Pretorius is now raiding Ngungunklovo and burning it to the ground and finding Retief. Yeah. You're talking 10 months. Okay. 10 months. <laughs> now, did that piece of paper survive intact in a saddlebag for 10 months? In the rain, storms, wild animals, vultures, hyenas, dogs. Okay, I throw it out there. But apparently the copy of that treaty is in the archives of the Fortrecker Monument. And 
there is dispute as to where the original is. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that treaty is now used as, or was used for many years, as the legitimate treaty giving land to food trackers in the then Natal. Yes, yes. My question mark is, did that piece of paper survive 10 years in a leather saddlebag on a hill in the rain and everything else Ten months. and come out yeah. legible? Yeah. <laughs> uh, unless he was very clever and he was... But There were no jiffy bags and there was no laminating in 1838. <laughs> so that piece of paper was in a leather saddlebag. Yeah. So discussion point let's let's put it out there i think there can be question marks <laughs> as to that treaty and that's going to irritate a whole heap of people when i say when i say that 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 the treaty 10 months in a leather saddlebag i don't know yeah but uh again that museum is just so worth so worth visiting that fortrica monument the symbolism is just incredible so and and a very nice annex to the fortrica monument the other side of the parking lot is an incredible display on the sort of post post world war rise of Afrikanerdom and how the Afrikaners from literally after Anglo Boer War were absolutely impoverished. The farms have been burnt, scorched earth policy, you know, yeah. concentration camps, the whole lot. And how the policy of nationalism actually hauled the Afrikaners <laughs> out of that abject poverty. That kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't yeah. that happening now? <laughs> well, yeah, again, history history always repeats itself. Yeah. There's, there's very little new in history. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so the, the foot trekkers the foot trekkers are a constant theme through South Africa. It's one of the iconic happenings in in our history. But I think where we go from there, and now we're touching on concentration camps and things, we've got to do, now go talk. And because today was the official proclamation of the concentration camp policy of the Second Anglo-Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, Second Anglo-Boer War, was, one of, was the first war fought between two modern armies. And the British had forced the war, and at the root of the war was the ownership of the gold mines in the Transvaal. Uh. 1886, gold is discovered. Kruger's little republic, from being a tiny backwater full of basically illiterate farmers, Kruger himself could hardly read and write, suddenly becomes literally the richest nation on the planet. Yeah, Britain is looking at it. <laughs> And they're going, we want that. We need that. Yeah. They had already drawn a couple of the borders in and around South Africa and with a little bit of slate of hand had magically managed to make Kimberley and the diamond mines part of the British colony of, of the Cape. Yeah. There was a whole lot of stuff around that area. We've got the Republic of Goshen. We've got the Republic of... Um, um, or the, the, the name escapes me, but there were a couple of little mini republics around that area that eventually all disappeared. And with the redrawing of it, suddenly Kimberley just happens to be um, in the Cape under the control of Cecil John Rhodes. Yeah. But we then start, the gold is discovered, eight Londoners come into, into, the, into the republic to work on the mines. Kruger understands. Kruger, very, very wily, very crafty guy, very world-wise. Yeah. 
And he realizes very soon that the Outlanders or the Britishers or the Outlanders are going to outnumber the Afrikaners in their own country, yeah. and they would soon lose power. So he denied them the vote. He put very restrictive taxes on them. He really tried to protect the interests of the Afrikaner, much to the anger of the industrialists <laughs> like Rhodes and Alfred yeah. Byte and, and, and these guys. So the war was more or less manufactured. And it was actually quite interesting. I, I, was, I follow a couple of these pages on Facebook. And there was a bit of a discussion as to exactly who was the aggressor in the Second Anglo-Boer War. Yeah. Now, Kruger had made an alliance with President Stain from the Free State. At that stage, South Africa was four separate colonies, the British colony of the Cape. Then you had the colony of Natal. They yeah. were both British-governed colonies. And then we had the, the Orange Free State, and we had the Transvaal. Yes. And at that stage, the shape of the Transvaal was also vastly different. Our southern border now, um, at well, in, in, in the early 1800s, ran down very close to where now Dundee is. So a lot of what is now KZN okay. was actually part of the old Transvaal. Okay. And little interesting aside was that Kruger was so desperate at one stage to become independent of Great Britain that he actually negotiated with the Germans to get a passageway through to St. Lucia and use St. Lucia as a landing, as a, as a harbor. Okay. And that got the British in complete uproar. They didn't want the Germans mucking about now in, <laughs> in what is sort of southern Mozambique, that stage just south of Mozambique. And that was a massive international incident, and eventually Kruger had to withdraw that. Yeah, but he yeah. was desperate for a route to the sea. And that's also why, why the, the, the railway line was developed from, from Pretoria, Johannesburg, from the Witwatersrand through the Lofeld Kruger Park area down to Maputo. Yeah. To keep independence from the British. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the British more or less fomented this war and used the grievances of the Eidlanders to create political issues. It culminated in what was known as the Jamison Raid, where oh, yeah. Cecil Rhodes privately funded a little expeditionary force of mercenaries to come in from then Botswana land, now Botswana, the Tuli block. Yeah. He armed them, he paid them, and they came and raided into Johannesburg. But they were, they were captured and seriously clapped now in near Dorenkop. And it's actually okay. a very nice day trip. You can actually follow the entire Jamison raid by going through the memorial. There's the old battle site, there's the surrender site. As you go now up through towards Krugersdorp, there's a good couple of graves of the British who were killed on the old mine lands. Yeah. And in the Krugersdorp cemetery is, are, 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 are some of the British soldiers, but some of the burghers that died have got a memorial in the Krugersdorp cemetery as well. Yeah. And, and there's a great roadhouse in the middle of that whole story. We can get the most awesome hamburger. So it's actually a very nice little day trip oh. if you're looking for something to do on a Saturday or a Sunday to follow Can't the, do route that of, to me. the route of the Jamison raid. I'm hungry. <laughs> Again. But the British, you know, and the British had a massive buildup of troops in, into, into, into Zululand or into KZN. And Kruger, although it's a British colony, fine, you can do what you like. Kruger saw that this was the prelude to war. And at one stage, I think over 10,000 troops had come up into that northern area of KZN. And the ultimatum came and Kruger demanded the withdrawal of all British troops massing on his borders. I mean, it's not hard to work out. When you've got 10,000 troops massing on your border, the guys are up to something. They're not, yeah. they're not putting them there for fun. Yeah. It's not R&R. &R. <laughs> 
And the ultimatum was sent. One of the demands was that the British troops or the British withdraw troops from the border by a certain time. It didn't happen. And that's when Kruger and the commandos went over the border into what is now Natal. Yeah. So who was the aggressor? I suppose technically Kruger and the, and the, and the Transvaalers were the aggressors. They crossed the border into KZM, but yeah. the British forced it by that massive buildup. And yeah. it was just interesting to follow the thought process of these guys on the, on these Facebook pages, these historical discussion pages as to who was actually the aggressor. Was it the British by forming the troops there or was it Kruger and the commanders yeah. coming out over the border? But that first <laughs> yeah. phase of the war was characterized by the British caught completely unprepared. They actually had to withdraw. They got, they got clapped at Talana, the first battle at Talana. General White withdrew all his troops into, into Ladysmith. Ladysmith got besieged. Yeah. We had the siege of Kimberley. We had the siege of Mafeking. And the war came to more or less a kind of stalemate at that, at that stage. The Boers should have pressed home the advantage and really gone on to the attack. But they were probably just waiting to see, okay, we've got them on the run. Surely they are going to now sort of come to terms with it. And they, yeah. were, they were probably living a little bit in the history of the first Anglo-Boer War after Majuba, where Britain capitulated. And, but Britain didn't. They, had, yeah. they hadn't calculated with Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria didn't take very kindly to being humiliated. <laughs> and uh, she just then sent massive reinforcements into South Africa. And it's an interesting number. At the, by the end of the Anglo-Boer War, something in the region of 600,000 colonial troops, imperial troops, had done service in South Africa. Wow. That's the scale That's of the kind of fight that we're talking here. 600 or 550,000, 600,000 Troops over those period, 1899 to 1902, had seen service in South Africa, from Australia, yeah. from India, from New Zealand, from Canada, from over the whole British Empire. Troops came in to fight in the Second Anglo-Boer War. Yeah. But the Boers, you're talking about frontiersmen in effect. You've got guys who are superb horsemen. You've got marksmen. For them to shoot at a thousand yards is not a challenge. Yeah. The British, the British soldier was given very, very rudimentary instruction on a rifle. They still, the British Army at that stage still relied on what they called volley fire. So yeah. you line these guys up shoulder to shoulder and you just almost shoot. So you're throwing this curtain of lead down at something yeah. and you hope to hit something. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the Boers would then sit at a thousand yards and slowly blink the guys off one by one. So yeah. a very different type of fighting. And the British Army... Coming out of the Victorian era, well, it was still the Victorian, Queen Victoria was still there. So you're talking Victorian army. Yeah. Very still much versed in sort of parade ground drills and shoulder to shoulder marching into attack and all the rest of it. And that's why they got clapped so heavily in those first weeks of the war. You're talking Modder River, you're talking Marisfontein, you're talking Colenso. You know, they got hammered and they'd never seen yeah. these kind of casualties before. <laughs> and they had no answer to the Boers' maneuverability. You're talking about guys that lie behind a rock. They shoot you at a thousand yards. They get on the horse and they run away, <laughs> which is perfectly legit. That's just, yeah. like a guerrilla type of fighting. But now you, the British army is now marching shoulder to shoulder in close formation in a couple of thousand guys trying to attack. Yeah. So it's just way different ways of fighting. Yeah, totally. And the, and the British army with those kind of numbers, very tied to the transport system, tied to the roads, and the railways. So the Boer tactics is to disrupt, disrupt the supply lines, blowing up the railway lines, you know, hammering the supply columns. And yeah. 
The Brits had no answer to this. And eventually what happens is Kitchener, Lord Kitchener comes in and he now realizes that the Boers are using the farms and the, the, the families that have stayed back on the farms as their supply points. Yeah. So he institutes a scorched earth policy. Oh, yes. So he couldn't tackle the Boers on a head-to-head fight because of that maneuverability. I mean, they, like they, you know, they, they never captured some of these guys. You know, commandos, a couple of hundred strong, would just disappear over the horizon. The British were left flat-footed. <laughs> and he then decides on the scorched earth policy. So when they got to a farm, they would burn the farmhouse. They would kill the cattle, kill the sheep, and take the women and children. And they couched it in very, very fancy terms, and they, they called them refugee camps. Because there was nothing left for them, we will look after the Boer women and children because there's no farms. But they burnt the farms in the first place. And the Boer women and children were taken into these concentration camps. And today is the anniversary of that first proclamation. And it took, the, it took them about a year to actually come into, into that phase of the war. And eventually we're talking 45, 45 different tented camps dotted around South Africa yeah. um, for the women and children. And something that is forgotten, 65 camps for Africans, for the farm workers. Oh, okay. So not just the Boer women children, but the African workers were taken into these concentration camps as well. Yeah. Again, it's a hugely emotive part of history. You know, you talk concentration camps, you immediately start thinking Nazis and gas chambers and stuff. Yeah. But these concentration camps, it was never a designed policy of extermination. It was a policy of scorched earth, and we're getting the women and children off the land so that they cannot resupply the commandos. Yes. The deaths, the deaths occurred, and they numbers vary, but I think you can settle somewhere around 25,000 poor women and children died in these concentration camps. Yeah. But from disease, starvation, Starvation. maladministration, just, you know, you're asking an army guy now to look after a camp. Yeah. The the two just didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a hugely emotive part of our history that so many people and so many women and children died in these camps. And if you look at that and you, and you look at those statues of women, especially the one at the Fortrecker Monument where the woman is the future with the children protecting the children from Africa and its dangers, yeah. you know, you, you understand the kind of hurt that comes out of this thing. But the other monument that I think should be on every South African's to-do list is what's called the Froer Monument in Roemfontein. And the Froer Monument is just outside the National Boer War Museum. You can get lost in that museum for a day. Is it? (laughs) You can get lost in there for a day. It is an incredible, an incredible museum. But the statues outside... As you drive in, you've obviously got the main entrance gate. The museum is a museum. It's a big block building of museum. Yeah. But you've got several statues and memorials dotted around in this little terrain. And you come in through what's called the Bitter Ender Gate. The Bitter Ender. The Bitter Bitter. Enders. Yeah. Towards the end of the war, you're talking scorched earth. There's no farms. You've got commandos out in the felt. There's no clothes. There's no food. The guys literally are dressed in 
sacks and in grain sacks and in whatever they could find. find yeah. The horses are starving. And again, something that's very emotive is that a lot of the Boers would use captured uniforms purely because yes. they had nothing else. Yeah. But under all conventions of war, you are not allowed to use the enemy's uniforms yes. because you're then seen as a spy or as some kind of infiltrator, etc., yeah. etc. Et and a lot of Boers who were captured wearing uniform were shot. Okay. Uh, ah, again, both, si- both sides of the history story there, very, very emotive because they were then shot as spies and not as combatants. As a combatant, you are captured and you're a prisoner of war. Yeah. But as a spy, you are, you are shot. Okay. But they were shot because they had the British uniforms on. So you've got this picture of the, the, the you know, they go through the Bitter Ender Gate. Yeah. You've also got a little statue there to what they call the Achterreiers. The Achterreier being the, the servants who got caught up in the war. Yes. A lot of the Boers would, would, would arrive <coughs> with a servant or two in tow. So the servant would look after the horses and keep the camp going while the Boer went and did some fighting. Yes. Etc. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little monument there to the Achterreiers. The most emotive part of this to me is there's a beautiful statue of what they call the Afskate, the Farewell Memorial. And again, you've got this picture of the Boer woman who's reaching out to her husband who's leaving on his horse. Yeah. She's, you, can see, you can see the emotion in that statue. You can see the tears. Mm. And the, 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 the Boer is on his horse, sort of sitting mm. half sideways, reaching back for that last look. Yeah. And that last touch of his wife and family. I mean, ah, guess yeah. we're going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yes. But there's two other statues there that are, that are really cool. Two other memorials. You've got the Exile Memorial because Boer prisoners of war were more or less given a choice and said, either you sign a pledge of allegiance now to, to, us. to Great Britain <laughs> yeah. or you go into exile at the end of the war. And a lot of them decided they are no way ever going to sign any kind of Pledge of Allegiance to England. Yeah. And the picture of this is a, is a grandfather with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a kid. And the railing is actually the prow of a boat. Okay. And they're standing there sort of looking their last look at Africa as they are now sent into exile. Yes. And South Africans have got little communities in Argentina for example, there's a, there's a whole community of Afrikaans-speaking people in Argentina of exiles from the Anglo-Boer War. Oh, That's where wow. that comes from. Okay. Um, a beautiful song, and I'm sure and I, I, you don't have to play it now, but I'm pretty sure you got it on the playlist is Sari Marais. Yeah. Sari Marais is one of our exports. The the British Royal Commandos. It's their marching tune. Sari yeah. Marais from the Anglo-Boer War. The Girl Guides of Sri Lanka. Yes. Their tune is Sari Marais because they heard it coming out of the, prison, the, the, the Boer prisoner of war camps. Yes. They heard them singing Sari Marais, bring my terug naar jou transvaal. I mean, how much more emotive can you give than get than that? <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the last, the last sort of standalone statues at the Froa Monument is the Bitter Einde Memorial. And he has, you literally see this guy on an exhausted horse. He's in absolute rags, but he is fighting to the absolute bitter end. And there's just no way he, he wants to give up. But 
look, at the end of the war, they, they, they had to. And, and I think it was General Jan Smuts. Jan Smuts was one of the fighters. He actually said that the, the truce was signed not because of a military defeat or victory, but purely as a self-preservation of the Boer nation, because if they'd carried on, there would be no one left. No. Everybody would have yeah. starved to death. Yes. But the centerpiece of the Froa monument is obviously the Froa monument. Yeah. And that is a, an, interesting, an interesting structure. You walk up this pathway, and along the pathway are memorial stones with the names of every concentration camp in South Africa. Wow. And on, on each little stone is the number of people who died in that camp. And there's a memorial wall. And again, that gets you going. Because all the names are inscribed on this memorial wall of everybody who died in the concentration camps. Yeah. And a little bit off, off out of Bloemfontein, if you ever really want to hit, and if you ever really you want to, want to experience this, there's a tiny, dusty little town now on the N1 that has more or less been abandoned because it was a a major railway junction at the time of the steam locomotives. The, the train stopped there to tank water. Oh, yes. Obviously, now that no longer happens with the diesel and the electric yeah. trains. And it's a little town called Springfontein. 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 Okay. And that was the site of one of the concentration camps. There was a, there was a concentration camp in Springfontein. Oh. Now, to find the... Cemetery is a mission. I had to find a local guy because you got to go around and through a township and through some built-ups and over a donga and around the telephone pole and through some farmer's fields. And eventually you find uh, the cemetery. The British part of the cemetery where the British are buried, the British soldiers who died in that area obviously interred there as well. Superbly well looked after. Then you got the Afrikaner section that's not so well looked after. One of, yes. I think a South African mission should be to get something equivalent to the War Graves Commission to actually look after these places. But those were the deaths from that concentration camp. Yeah. But yeah. The, the heartbreaking part of Springfontein is the second cemetery on the other side of town. <clears throat> so you leave the main memorial and you go off through town. Yes. And there's a tiny little cemetery. When you, you, if you turn off the main road, you've got a massive truck stop, but you keep on going a little bit way. And then up on the right-hand side, you'll see one of the little brown signs with the little, little crosses on it. Yeah. And that is the babies cemetery. Oh, the babies. Oh, my God. And as far as I can understand it, the babies were buried there because they had not yet been baptized, so they couldn't be buried in the Christian cemetery. Oh. They were too young to have been baptized, and yet they died in the concentration camps. Yes. And you walk into that little terrain, and you've got little tiny graves like a meter by half a meter, not even, half a meter by quarter, like by, by 750. Yeah. Where the babies are buried that died in those concentration camps. Sure. And that is just absolutely heartbreaking. But those names go back to Bloemfontein. The, the Froa monument there actually commemorates this entire concentration camp story. Yeah, yeah. But the, mon the monument itself is actually, it's a monument and it's, what, and it's a mausoleum, which makes it kind of unique in the world. Okay. Because Emily Hobhouse is interred in the Women's Memorial, in the Froa Monument. Okay. Emily Hobhouse yes. being that British nurse who kicked up such a fuss and brought it out to the world's attention about the conditions of what Britain was doing yes. in these concentration camps in South Africa. 
Yes. And, you know, and she was more or less, again, ostracized by the British because why is she helping the enemy? Yeah. yeah. But she's buried there. An English woman is buried in the Women's Monument in Bloemfontein. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that, 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 I just, I find that kind of cool. Yeah, no, But there's cool. some other people interred there as well. Um, General Christian de Vette is buried there. President Stain is also buried in the Frau Monument. Okay. Because, obviously, Stain being the president of the Free State, allied to Kruger. Yes, yes. Um, for, for, for that fight. But yeah. that terrain or that entire site, the Frau Monument in, in Bloemfontein, and you've got to tie that up with a visit to the Footricker Monument, have to be on everyone's bucket list to see at least once. If you're yeah. a South African, you've got to go see those two places. Yeah. No, yes, there's – oh, I can just sit and listen the whole day to what you have to say. Um, I think – what's the time now? I think let's play – We've a, got a minute to go, so I'm pretty sure Sari Marie is on the list. Yeah, Sari Marie is on there. <laughs> but I've got three versions that I'm going to play. Oh, my word. Uh, but uh, I'm going to end off with the modern version. It's quite a beautiful piece. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to uh, take people back to the old uh, Sari Marie – and uh, yeah, then I'm going to go to the newer one. Okay, let's start off with this one. Ah, Als hy so'n bykie van een klipwerf nommerkie, dis daai Sari Marie, maar nou gaan ek vir julle die, die nieuwer weergave speel van hom, uh, wat ook baie mooi is, uh, gaan luister om, en is baie mooi. Ik denk het is nog een briljante weergave daai van Sari Marie. So bykie oud en niet uh, so lekker gemeng. Maar die dere kon vertel hulle so bykie weer van uh, Mikey's Fontaine. Let's uh, talk about that competition that's coming up. Yeah guys, it's a huge push at the moment. Um, tourism is, is, is coming back. My little tour safari company got, I got my first inquiry out of the US. The first one in two years. Out. First inquiry yeah. in two years landed landed last week. So things are happening. Tourism, we've got to rebuild our tourism infrastructure. It's one of our major earners of foreign currency. It drives tens of thousands of jobs. Last estimation was 75,000 jobs were lost just Ew. in the tourism sector alone. Everybody in a hotel, from cleaner to waiter to manager to hotel to rooms to tour guides to drivers to coach drivers to, you know, you name it. It's a yeah. massive industry. But Mikey's Fontaine is on a huge drive. Two nights at the Roy- at the Lord Milner Hotel, free bed and breakfast. It's a- Mikey's Fontaine is a stunning little place. Beautiful little museums in there, like a little pub there. For- it's in the middle of the Karoo. There's lots of places to explore, even just to sit at night, look at the stars, and listen to the jackals. Um, but you need to download the app. There's answers to questions on the app. You've got to log into the EcoHealth right. Facebook page. You've yeah, got to log radio. into the magazine. You've yeah. got to <laughs> Do a couple of things, get the answers, and we'll draw it, and the competition will run through the course of next month. So please, guys, spread the word. It's an awesome prize. 
Yeah, and please go watch uh, the Facebook page uh, for more details. And last week's competition is still on there, and I think I'm going to keep running that one till next week. Um, the questions, everything is there. You just need to go listen to the podcast. The answers are there, and it's pretty easy. Um, so, yeah, go listen to the podcast, and you can win a 20kg bag of healthful paws here from Peer at EcoHealth. So, yeah, go win a bag. And for the depots, uh, if you do win a bag, you're also allowed to enter. However, you need to donate that bag of food to an organization or to a person that cannot afford uh, dog food at the moment. So, we're trying to pay it forward. So for the depots, that's a challenge for you guys. Yeah, so uh, join the competition, and if you win it, you can donate it to either, uh, let's say, uh, a dog kennel that needs food for their dogs, or uh, one of your clients that uh, won't be able to pay this month for their dog food, or something like that. So yeah, please uh, join us and uh, win the competition. It's there use it Diedrich that was awesome no it got, got me going time again is too short gives us it lots is. of scope for next week again <laughs> and uh, yeah history history is writ- written by the winners and there's all sorts of hidden things in there as well that come out afterwards very cool yes but yeah I'm going to play out with this song because uh, it is Snotkop's Raak van my rustig en hulle praat ook van Braai Hiesel in die song and I need to get the rest of now. <laughs> I forgot uh, Friday's a uh, public holiday, so yeah, I will still be working, but yeah, it's uh, it's on braai. Okay, here we go. Tot ziens allemaal. Hope you had a lekker song with ons geluister hier so en geniet die rest van julle dag. Fat ons is a vrijdag, vrijdag laat die